are recording, and you can go ahead and uh, you have to press play whenever you're ready. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. It is. I, it is. I moved it back. Yeah, all you have to do okay. is hit the button on the bottom, the space bar. Okay, so... Just hit the space bar, the button on the bottom. Space bar. Space bar. Space bar, right, right here. That's the space bar. Sorry. That's a button. <laughs> it's not back at the beginning. Now it is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It is a Cryptocast episode six. Uh, today we're talking about, or in this podcast, I should say, we're talking about production and post-production, or in our case, how not to make a movie. Stories from the trenches. I'm award-winning filmmaker Mark Ritchie, and this is my business partner, award-winning, Christian. Award-winning filmmaker Christian Stavrakis, and, and uh, we are... In some respects, still in the trenches. And, uh, we kind of live in the trenches. But uh, we're going to tell you about how we made a movie uh, for practically nothing and how you should not make your movie. In the manner in which we did. Right. <laughs> you should make your movie, just not in the manner in which we did. Yeah. So we ended up with a movie, but it took us a long, long time to get there, uh, mostly because uh, it was a process of trial and error. We tried different things. They didn't work. And because we live in two different states... Uh, it was very difficult to coordinate. And Mark lives in Maryland. I live in Pittsburgh. And it's not uh, very far away from each other, you know, geographically speaking. But, uh, you know, we have families and jobs. And, uh, you know, our wives put up with a lot. Uh, put up with a lot of uh, uh, delays and shooting, uh, you know, in our own houses and stuff like that. And so it was it was difficult. But it took a long time to put it together. And we edited long distance. Uh, but let's let's start at the beginning. Well, had we been smart... I think we would have done what, what uh, John Watts and Christopher D. Ford did back in mid-October of 2010. That's right. They put together a trailer for a, a clown movie, a horror, a horror movie about a clown. And uh, they, with, with wonderful audacity, they put Eli Roth Presents, and it was you know, the clown. And uh, rather than being sued off the face of the earth like we assumed would happen you know, if we tried something like that, Eli Roth loved it. And so they ended up screenwriting uh, the production of Clown, which I think is now a finished movie. Uh, yeah, it was released in 2014. Yeah. Yep. And yep. Uh, but that you know sometimes that's all it takes is having a, having enough balls to do something like that and hope that the other person plays along. Uh, if we had thought of that, we certainly would have done it. But uh, it occurred to them first, and they, you know, God bless them, they they reap the reward of of crossing Eli Roth the right way. Yes. Not us, though. Instead, no. we, we, we did were, it the we hard were, way. At that point, we were in year two of what would end up being a five-year production shoot or a four-year production shoot. And I remember you getting extremely frustrated with the fact that these guys got all this recognition online from Eli, from Roth, and you thinking, well, that's it. We should just, that's it. Let's wrap up you know, the show and, and call it quits. There were plenty of times that I wanted to throw it in, and uh, thank God Mark would not let me. Um, because and you too, as independent filmmakers, there there will be a point where you will get discouraged and want to call it quits. Oh yeah, it, it, it will happen. So. You know, but you know, there's there are all kinds of obstacles that will get in your way. Some of which may be you yourself, and I know that from personal experience. Uh, do not give up. That's our our primary message. Keep keep working. Finish your movie. And like I said, even if it's if it ends up being not very good, at least you've had the practice and make another one. You know, keep keep working. Keep uh, you'll have a body of work. And you'll have, if nothing else, experience making these things. And, you know, eventually one of them will get somebody's attention. But if there w- was a way how not to make a movie, we could write the book on that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what this podcast is. We should is. write the book. Well, we, we, well, we're doing a podcast instead. Right. Um, even though I have to say that along the way, we were told by, by our supporters, our mentors, even um, Eduardo Sanchez, director of the Blair Witch Project, who we've mentioned in previous podcasts, 
that we were living the dream and, and we'd look at him like, what the heck are you talking about? I mean, here's a gentleman who's, who's been able to, you know, uh, uh, gather funding for several features that he's produced since uh, the Blair Witch Project came out. Um, but he would say things like, do you guys realize that you are retaining and maintaining all the rights to your film because you're investing in it yourselves? You don't have investors looking over your shoulders or, or you don't have producers or executive producers spatting out deadlines, demanding a, a fast return on their investment. Um, instead, you guys are in this unique privileged category where you're able to take your time and make the film that you want. And all we could think about was, what are you talking about? It's taking us forever to do this film. Yeah. It's taking us four years to churn this sucker out. But we had final cut. <laughs> but we did have Final Cut, which I which I've discovered is a is a very very important uh, component of the filmmaking process, and it's that's something that even Lucas talks about in several of, of the books written about him, or whenever he's interviewed, um, that that maintaining control of your artistic uh, uh, signature is key, and uh, he he experienced uh, you know uh, plenty of times. I, I think of American Graffiti being his probably his first studio mm -hmm. experience, and there were little Although things. That may have happened with THX also. I don't yeah, know. Um, but uh, but you know his, his the, the fate of his projects weren't in his hands, and and you know he there was had, the famous story about Ned Tannen. They screened American Graffiti, and the audience was screaming and laughing, and they loved it. And afterwards, Ned Tannen, who I guess was in a bad mood to begin with, he came over and said, "I can't believe you showed it to an audience in this in this form. It needs a lot <laughs> of work." State. And and Coppola whipped out his checkbook and said, "I will buy this film from you right now. Yeah, How yeah. much do you want for it?" And, and Lucas was kind of you know shocked. And but that was the famous story. Is that if you think there was something wrong with this movie, the way the audience reacted. Then, and that, and that was this, well, that's, that's the state of Hollywood now. Even it's, sometimes they miss the mark. Yeah, uh, you know these these. Uh, these four quadrant focus groups and these test screenings and all this sort of thing that that allows your marketing department to assess how they're going to promote your film. I mean, nowadays when you go to Hollywood, if you're pitching a film, you're not pitching to a producer or an executive producer. You're pitching to the to marketing department. Oh yeah. They decide whether or not that, that's the that's the end all and the be all. If you can't convince them how the film could be marketed to a, a large scale audience, they're not interested. And that's the first thing they have. And they had trouble with uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception. They sat down and they said, "We can't make this film. We don't know how to promote it. It's nothing like this has ever been done before." And Chris and Nolan is the last thing he cares about. It's like this is the this is the story I came up with. This do you know? They they didn't. Well, what is it? Is it a sci fi movie? Yeah, yeah. Is it a, you know, they, they had to pigeonhole it. Yeah, and I did that once. That uh, I was at the mall. Oh in, yeah. In the nineties, yeah, and some girl came up with a clipboard, and I said, to, "She said, do you have a minute?" And I said, "What would you like me to do?'" She says, I want to show you a movie trailer. I said, all right, sure, I'm in, I'm in, you know, because yeah. they pay you a couple of bucks to watch this trailer. What did you see? I remember was, I saw Braveheart. That's what it was. Trailer, it was a trailer. Braveheart? Yeah, you trailer did for Braveheart. They must have been but doing they, it in this area. But they had cut it. No, it was in Pittsburgh. It oh, was wow. in Monroeville Mall. Well, it must have been up and down the East Coast. Yeah, but they, they had, the trailer made it look like a romance, like a Rob Roy kind of romantic period thing. And there was very little evidence of the battle sequences. Oh, and God. so it said, based on this trailer, would you go to see this movie? And I marked no. No, <laughs> the one, the trailer I and saw was completely I different. Finally, went and saw it on a date, thinking it was going to be this romantic thing, and it was sort of this, you know, bloody <laughs> medieval war. I thought, my God, this is great. I had no idea from that trailer that this medieval was what mayhem. I was going to see. <laughs> because of course the studio was worried. They're thinking, well, can we pitch it to the, you know, the, the sensitive audience? I mean, it's just a bloody war movie. It's like, well, it, you know, but, but it's the film finally speaks for itself. Well, it, it, long story short, we, we did retain our rights. We still have the rights to our film and, and own them. Yeah, um, we are in is, a unique position that we own our own movie. And, uh, you know, all these 
permutations and possibilities for distribution that we've examined over the years, and Mark has really done the legwork on that, uh, we never sold out. We never sold the project to anybody, which, you know, the companies were offering us a couple of bucks to buy the thing outright, and, and Mark said, no, no, we put too much time and effort and love into this thing, and we're not just going to hand it over for a few dollars and walk away. I, I, I remember when we were meeting with distributors in Los Angeles, uh, there was one uh, meeting that we left, and Chris... Uh, grabbed a copy of the DVD and you clutched it to your chest and you were like, I will jump off of the nearest bridge and die with this film before I let somebody walk away with the ownership rights to yeah. it. Um, but having owning the rights to our film and, and sort of flying under the, the sort of certainly the Hollywood radar but as an independent filmmaker flying under even the radar of the local film offices in Maryland and in Pittsburgh yeah. did grant us a lot of perks um, we were able to film uh, you know, we, we, we weren't a, a high-profile uh, company at the time. We weren't a, hope, a high-profile film production. And, and it, it allowed us to, to shoot on the cheap, um, but it also allowed us to cut corners. I'm thinking of, uh, Chris had mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts that we were shooting the scene, uh, the, the riot scene, mm-hmm. outside of the Oaks Theater in Pittsburgh. And your main cons- I, I, I my thought was we're going to have 10 people we'll go down we'll shoot it really really quick it'll be done and we'll be out of there before anybody notices and it was you that suggested no I think we need a, to get a police officer and I said I'm not paying for a police We don't. Have, that money's not in the budget and so what you ended up doing was contacting a friend who was on the force yeah. who came down off duty if yeah. I'm not he mistaken he came down not only off duty he came down in a period uniform and was in the scene And, <laughs> and uh, but he also because you know finally we had you know, people with blood on their heads and, and puddles of what appeared to be vomit on the sidewalk. Yeah, that's true. And a real cop pulled up and said, what the hell's what the hell's going on, on here? <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's okay. We're just shooting a scene, you know. But we got this permission. We got to use the location for nothing. We got, you know, 12 people together at my house, and we all sort of marched over to the theater. and Begged and pleaded. Begged and pleaded. And, and again, we could have made it even better. When I talk about, you know, not letting a low budget tie your hands, and the, pro- the fault was mine in this instance because I was determined to shoot the whole thing in one take as if it was the raw footage from a news reel or news footage camera so i had we only had a few people and you could tell from a single take that no matter how much you switched the camera around there were only a few people there and uh, had i thought in advance of how mark was going to cut it we certainly could have had much more activity had those same 10 people running around in the background uh you know and there are ways to make things a lot more active than they really are so in that case, I shot myself in the foot by, by limiting my options, by shooting it in a, a way that I thought it needed to be done. And it certainly could have been done better, and I learned that you know, in post, in cutting. Experience, you know, experiences, uh, in hindsight, obviously, yeah. something that, we, yeah. that we'll take with us on our, on our next project and the project after that. In the meantime, we were flying by the seat of our pants, but it didn't prevent us from being able to access or, or maintain... The, the mise-en-scene that we were looking for mm-hmm. or uh, a high production value. And I think of uh, Chris contacted me and said, so I need a, a period ambulance. And I said, Chris, where are you going to find? Uh, we can't afford a period. I mean, renting, you know, these, these companies that rent out these period cars, they're, that's expensive for a day shoot. That's not even just the companies. Of dollars. There are people who own these vehicles that, that have rented them out to productions and will do so. And they'll say, okay, I want 300 a day. Yeah. And you got to take care of my car and put gas or whatever. And uh, I just asked around because I had friends who are police officers and, and, and people who were paramedics. And I said, who owns? And there were actually two. We found two of them. But I said, who, who, we need a 1960s ambulance. 
And um, originally we found a guy up in Catanning that owned one, but it Catanning, wasn't... Pennsylvania. Yeah, Catanning, PA. It was in, I don't think it was in running order or it was being repainted or something. It wasn't quite ready to shoot. I remember you sending the photos and I was like, we can't use that. That's a trashy. Yeah, yeah, but it was, uh, but it was there. And then, uh, you know, we, he was looking for permission. And while we were waiting to hear back from that guy, we found another fella named Rick Duffy who is... Uh, who literally was around the corner from you. I remember he's, like driving he's right across, two yeah, blocks right across the river. Going, what? Yeah. Uh, he works for EMS and he collects old ambulances. And he had, you know, I think three of them. One of them was from the perfect period. And uh, he put, uh, you know, out of the goodness of his heart, just because he had the plate, he put a, a correct period plate, license plate on the ambulance. We filmed everything in his yard that we needed for that sequence. And then he pulled out and drove up the street. And so we had our antique ambulance news footage. You know, and then, and then Mark degraded the film later to look like it was an old film from the uh, from the seventies. And we had this period car for free. Uh, now, I mean, oftentimes independent filmmakers are like, "Oh no, no, we're going to need the car. We're going to need to take it fifty miles down the road to a specific location." And and you can't tell watching our film that we filmed this in this guy's front yard. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we were we had our hands tied behind our backs, and we we were prepared to accommodate in any way that we could in order to get the production value that we were that we were seeking. But for anybody that says, you know, uh, that gives up at that moment and says, no, it's just not going to work the way I want it to work, you got, you got to keep uh, plowing ahead. You can't let the hurdles of production prevent you from, from success. Yeah, uh, there's always know, a way. There's always a way. So one of the other topics that I want to go over when it comes to production, uh, particularly production as opposed to post-production, is releases for your talent and for your locations. This is key, and I remember the meeting that we had in Eduardo Sanchez's living room, Ed being the director of the Blair Witch Project, who we mentioned in our previous podcasts. Ed specifically said, make sure that your paperwork is in order. And of course, being amateur filmmakers, we were like, well, why? Uh, and he says, because if you're, if something were to happen with your film, it'll be the first thing they ask for. It'll be first the first thing the production company asks for that's purchasing your product, and that is, do you have releases for your talent? We don't want to run into any legal snafus. Do you have releases for your locations? And you need, you need releases for both. If you do nothing else with regards to paperwork for your project, make sure that you get everyone to sign off that you have permission to use their likeness, not only for the film, but for advertising purposes, for the promotional campaign, and so forth. Yeah, there are in plenty perpetuity, of, yeah. because you want to, you want to, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, well, in the particular case of, of Star Wars Rogue One, where they used Grand Moff Tarkin's, uh, where they used Peter Cushing's uh, likeness, likeness yeah. they actually talked to his estate, and so forth. And they did get permission and to use permission. his likeness, but uh, yeah, you have to. But they didn't necessarily need to. They did it as a gesture of goodwill. As a gesture of goodwill. Yeah, there, now there are plenty of uh, online resources. Uh, for instance, no, what is it? No, no budget film school. That uh, Mark Stolarov. Yep. Is that's uh, a great resource for information. And there are a lot of you know that you can find online uh, the releases you need, and you can adjust the wording as necessary to make sure that all your bases are covered. You know, if you if you know a lawyer, talk to one and see if he can advise you. I one think way or another. I think Mark's web. I think the No Budget Film School actually has a link to uh, uh, paperwork to resources yeah. for all the different types of forms that you need. So all this stuff um, is out there, but you know, make sure you cover yourself because, uh, like we said, it's it's important not only to have a company uh, to stand behind in case of trouble down the road, but it's also very good to make sure all your paperwork is signed because you don't want some actor coming back in five years and saying, where's my, my cut? You can't use my image anymore. Or you can't use my image, yeah. which is which would be uh, detrimental. Yeah. 
In any case, there are other resources uh, that, that you have at your access. The, your local film office. Uh, we have the Maryland Film Commission here, uh, the local film office. Pittsburgh Film uh, Office. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Film Office. I mean, almost every region, almost I know of every state, every state uh, has a, a film office. It's where the major studios would go in order to begin filming in any particular state. They always go to the film office first. The film office will help with locations. They'll help you even with the paperwork. They may be able to help you with uh, financial resources, uh, investors that are looking to invest in local filmmakers. So, so the film office is a, is, a, is a remarkable resource. We chose not to use the film office right. because, again, we were trying to fly under the radar. Under the radar. And if you're, if you're planning on guerrilla filmmaking, uh, remember that once you contact your local film office, you are on the radar. You know that they, you, so they, they know you exist. If somebody sees you filming on so. a street corner... And, you know, a policeman asks to see your permit to shoot there. The film office is going to say, oh, we talked to those guys. Why didn't they get the proper yeah, paperwork yeah. done? Because you do have to pay to film in public locations in a lot of cities. So uh, make sure your, your, your asses are covered that way, too. And we modified our production to be able to avoid some of those conflicts, some of those, uh, uh, some of those legal issues. We sort of circumvented by, by shooting in specific locations that weren't necessarily ideal. Uh, or weren't necessarily the locations we originally wanted to film at. Yeah. And, and you know, in the case of, say, uh, uh, the filming at the Oaks Theater, that was a perfect situation of, oh, oh crap, we really got ourselves into a hole. I, I got nervous when the cop pulled up <laughs> because I, I thought, well, your friend is off duty. That's not going to help us. Oh, well, you weren't nervous when I was dragging you up the hill in the cemetery and when the guy pulled up, you continued to play man. <laughs> that was not for this production, by the way. That was for another production entirely. Mark, um, Mark just played dead and said, "Let him sweat." <laughs> now there are there are uh, other resources, and I'm not just talking about your film office or or, or online sites like No Budget Film School. But I think of uh, Chris lives in Pittsburgh, and there's a great uh, uh, facility up there called the Pittsburgh Filmmakers, and they actually rent out equipment at extremely reasonable rates. And I'm talking about everything from old eight millimeter uh, cameras. I'm talking about the old Super 8 cameras, the film cameras. They, they rent out 35 millimeter. They rent out uh, video cameras of all sorts, tripods, cranes, you name it. And they've got it at extremely reasonable rates. So anybody who says, well, I don't have a I mean, we ended up going out. I ended up going out and buying a crane for us because I found one online. It was about 100 and... A crane? It was like 200. Yeah, we got a film crane. We didn't use a crane. Uh, we didn't for Mortal Remains. I bought it after the fact. But uh-huh. I was like, damn it. The film would have been better had we had a film grain. Uh-huh. Um, and I use it for all of my uh, independent work that I do now for you know video production for corporate advertisement and, and that sort of thing. But again, there are tricks, too. You'll look on YouTube. There, there, there was a oh, trick yeah. for a little video camera that you could do these magnificent-looking shots. I mean, Sam Raimi used to do that on Evil Dead. He would, he would screw the camera down to a board, and they'd go running through the woods, and that's how you got that sort of Evil Dead you know, yeah, yeah, demon yeah. point of view. And so we did something like that because look online there on YouTube there was a video about wonderful camera moves you can do with like a, a tripod and a rubber band. And uh, I yeah, used that yeah, in yeah, Culture yeah, Shock. Yeah, I, I had this sort of slow zoom on JB, and I was just literally just leaning the tripod forward with a with a rubber band around it. So you can get a you can get a high high production quality look without having to spend a lot of money if you're if you're ingenious. If you look up some tricks and tips, and there are a lot of things you can do to cheat. I mean, you can stu- still do a lot of stuff in camera. Special effects. I mean, in Culture Shock, you know, which I shot yeah. the Culture Shock sequence of our movie. I don't know if, if you haven't seen the movie. It's, it's sort of a film within a film, right? And uh, it was supposed to be a period film from the early '70s. But these guys uh, are, are walking through the jungle and they find a, this mysterious temple, 
I thought, well, how the hell am I going to shoot a mysterious temple? Well, I, you know, I photoshopped together a picture of a mysterious temple and glued it on cardboard, glued the, the old metropolis stick. To, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I put it on a stick and stuck it in the woods with, you know, enough foliage in the background, and I blew some cigar smoke into the shot. And there was your misty temple out in the jungle. You know, and you only saw it for a second. Yeah, but, but it looks fantastic. Yeah, that's all you it need. That's all you need, just to get, the, you know, to so, get whatever shot you're on. All you have to do is fill the frame for that long. And I remember telling you, how are we going to build? We can't build that set. And I kept looking for castle locations said, that we could use. Me, yeah. I was like, I can't even afford the location release for that. I said, trust me. Um, and he and he pulled it off. Um, so eventually, after you've gone through production, uh, which we've covered, I guess, briefly, uh, but shared enough of our war stories with you, um, you're going to get to the post-production phase. Uh, which is what's going to conclude our podcast here. And in post-production, you're going to spend most of your time either going, oh my God, we need to do reshoots, which we did plenty of, Mm -hmm. which we did plenty of, and or you're going to run into the editing software issue. And oftentimes when people, when you go to the film festival circuit, if you're a filmmaker, one of the questions you're going to be asked, if your film is award-winning, you're going to be asked, "What what camera did you use to film with? And people are shocked when I tell them, well, we used about six or seven different types of cameras mm-hmm. from from Super 8 to uh, a Super, or I should say 8mm, uh, old Sony 8mm uh, video cameras to, uh, you know, $7,000 JVC GYU 100s uh, that, that, that shot in 24P. We used whatever we needed to in order to get the look that, that we wanted. And in um, some instances, we wanted a, de- a degraded look or, yes. or a night vision camera, so we had to use different equipment. But eventually, you're going to also be asked, so what editing software did you use? And the minute I say, well, we used Pinnacle prosumer software, people you, laugh. You hear gasps of horror what? from the... <laughs> Are you kidding me? And and they're shocked. When people watch our film, one of the comments, that one of the best comments that we get uh, oftentimes is, wow, I love your soundtrack. And, and then I tell them, well, I did it on Pinnacle Studio. And they'll be like, well, wait a minute. Pinnacle Studio only has four audio tracks. Yeah. How did you get that sound out of four? Well, you know what? The Beatles recorded on four God bless it, tracks. <laughs> and we still listen to the Beatles to this day. It can be done. I mean, there were, you know, there were things that I would have to do to, to, to access multiple tracks, re, you know, record all four of the audio tracks into one single track. You know what I mean? Compile at, it at in, this aud- point. in audacity, and then you know, and then uh, add, and then yeah. I have three more tracks to play with. At this point, we should certainly give a shout out to Kevin McLeod. Oh yes, who uh, who provided all the music, and I don't know, if, I don't know that he knows he provided. I'm sure we contacted him at one point, but uh, you, he has a website called Incompetech. I think it's is it Kevin McLeod? Kevin McLeod. Mc, McLeod, you sure? Right. McLeod, and it's uh, yeah, Incompetech.net, I think, or maybe it's .com. I don't know, but he he just does free. Royalty-free production music, library, you know, music, quote unquote, uh, that you are free to use for whatever production you put together, as long as you give him credit, credit. for the music. Yeah. And so we had the entire, almost the entire, Michael Coote, who was a big, a big help uh, in many ways with in this the production. Of, yeah, he was a big, big help behind the scenes. But he also composed a couple of tracks uh, of jungle music for the culture shock sequence. And um, so, but between Kevin, Kevin Stock music. And uh, Mike's original stuff, we we had the soundtrack completely covered, and people love that soundtrack. Yeah. And you know, little did they know that we got it for nothing. 
Free, absolutely free. Yeah, and you know, I was at the, the NASA uh, Space Center, Goddard Space Center, mm-hmm. uh, and we, were, my wife and I, were over there just for a day trip, and we were watching videos that they had, and and Kevin did the music <laughs> for those. Um, I think he's hired by a lot of corporate entities. Uh, yeah, and he and he will compose uh, original music for you if you hire him. Yeah, and he's certainly a very good composer. So you know, if you need music and you can afford it, seek him out. If you can't afford it, he still gives you his music for nothing. Just give the guy credit. Because he's a really, really good composer. You know, uh, uh, when folks laugh at us about the editing software, I remind them that Spielberg still edits on the reel-to-reels. Uh, his production company does not. Amblin doesn't, but but he does. He himself, yeah. Yeah, he ended up uh, buying some Steenbeck tables. He yeah, bought, he bought yeah. them all up. Yeah, bought them all up in Hollywood as the, as the as the conversion was taking place from film to digital. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, Spielberg is using old-fashioned, uh, archaic forms of of editing uh and i think you had mentioned earlier that michael kahn uh still edits on the old real yeah um he's probably the last one and nobody questions spielberg's techniques so i i chuckle when folks laugh at us and think hey look we made a a award-winning feature with With prosumer software software. we weren't using final cut we weren't using oh it would drive me nuts i I tell people it was like doing brain surgery with a butter knife (laughs) Because it wasn't easy. No, it, it no, you wasn't couldn't. Easy. You couldn't mark, put markers. You couldn't, you know, pick particular keyframes. But it, we got it done. There, there was almost an advantage to doing it in that crude fashion because of the the format that our film was taking. So once again, we're uh, the, the purpose of this podcast is to be inspiring to let you know. Once again, if if, if there's a way to make a film, it's not the way we did it, but we got it done. When people, when I do tell people, yeah, we did it on Pinnacle, they're shocked that we even finished the film. Pinnacle crashes every 15 or 20 minutes, sometimes every 10 <laughs> minutes. Pinnacle would crash on me and I would I would be left with, you know, a, a, a loss of, of particular of work, yeah. of work, loss of footage. I mean, it was nerve-wracking. But did, did we let that stop us? No. Did we let the fact that we, you know, had no funding stop us? No. Did we find ways... To, to you know to gain production value for the film without spending a dime yes can you do it too yes you can you just have to prevent yourself from being frustrated and you have to be a little bit ingenious oh, you will you will be you frustrated know? you will be frustrated but don't let that stop you don't don't give up don't ever give up finish your film finish your project and again if you have any questions if you need advice if you just want uh, you know a, a sympathetic ear uh, you know, shoot us a tweet at Cryptic Pictures or CrypticPictures.com. You can email Mark. You can email me. We'll be happy to give you any advice we can or, or just support if you need it. The door is always open yeah. for you folks. And if you have a, f- a film that you've made that you'd like us to see. Or We'd love to see it. Yeah. yeah. We love sharing uh, uh, projects with, with up-and-coming filmmakers. And we have uh, an anthology project in the works. Oh, we do, yes. Called Dark Zodiac. Uh, that's, uh, you know, it's going to be 12 short films about uh, different signs of the Zodiac, and they're all going to link together somehow. We're still putting it together, but, you know, if you're interested in this, contact us. You know, we'll be happy to, to let you know about it. Yeah, we'd, we'd like to see what you have in the, in the way of, of, of any trailers that you worked on, any shorts, or any features that you may have, because we're, we are vetting uh, directors right now in, in the hopes that we can compile uh, 12 very strong uh, uh, shorts in order to be able to do this anthology, and, and Cryptic Pictures is going to cover the costs of, not production, because you'll have to fund your own short, but we're covering the costs of distribution, um, and we'll also do screenings of the film in New York and L.A., and, and that'll be on our dime, just to be able to help promote uh, the work of, of independent filmmakers, so please keep uh, 
keep that in mind. So our next podcast is going to be talking about the power of hype. It's probably my my favorite of the podcast episodes that we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about how you will hype your project without lying. And we're going to share some very humorous anecdotal stories from our experience with all of our fans, some of which... Not necessarily humorous at the time. <laughs> at the time. They're funny well, now. We've never released... This is sort of behind the scenes. We've never even talked about some of the tricks that we did um, and how we exploited uh, those tricks to our benefit and how, how our fan base kind of reacted to them. And we sort of chuckled in the background going, did we actually get away with that? Um, once again, <laughs> we weren't lying. We weren't doing anything wrong, but we were employing hype. Um, and so we're going to talk about the power of hype, uh, which again we're looking forward to. But also, we still got to get to the most, one, probably the most important uh, episode, where we talk about uh, the the Hollywood distribution paradigm, how it's changing, and how you, as an independent filmmaker, can take advantage of that, um, because there is. There are so many avenues right now on how to get distribution and still not only maintain your rights yeah. to your project, but also keep your return on investment, keep the revenue coming to you. And I'm talking revenue in the, in the realm of 70% uh, for, for on every sale, be it a stream, a download, or a DVD sale. And we're going to talk about how you can do that in our coming episodes. Right. So, folks, so stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening.